Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, as sponsored by Westminster Presbyterian Church, located here in downtown Minneapolis. Today's program is originating from Wesley Methodist Church, a good neighbor to Westminster, not least of all during Westminster's centennial total renovation of its sanctuary. My name is Donald Meisel, Pastor Emeritus of Westminster, and Moderator Emeritus, you might say, of these forums, and I'm happy to be helping out today. Since the beginning in 1980, the overarching rubric for these forums has been and continues to be voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. Dr. Elder's visit with us today is a strong case in point. Co-sponsors of today's speaker are the Minnesota Drug Policy Council and the Drug Policy Fund of the University of Minnesota. The Open Debate Project, a joint effort of these two groups, is dedicated to raising awareness of drug policy options. It is a public information effort devoted to providing accurate, unbiased drug policy information, providing a forum for respectful examination of drug policy options, and supporting the development of evidence-based drug policy. And now to today's speaker, Dr. M. Jocelyn Elders, who currently pursues her medical career as a pediatric endocrinologist at the University of Arkansas School of Medicine from which base she lobbies ongoingly for those whom she perceives to be in dire need. Our guest has written a fine biography in collaboration with David Chanoff entitled Jocelyn Elders, MD, From Sharecropper's Daughter to Surgeon General of the United States of America. If you want to know and understand this remarkable woman the better, read her book. In 1993, when Dr. Elders was sworn in as Surgeon General, she became the first African-American and the second woman to hold the post. During her Senate confirmation, which was anything but an easy go, she said, I want to change the way we think about health by putting prevention first. I want to be the voice and vision of the poor and the powerless. I want to change concern about social problems that affect health into commitment. And I would like to make every child born in America a wanted child. Dr. Elders, having been an intern in the early 60s at the University of Minnesota Hospital and having returned often uh, to these parts, uh, you are no stranger to us, and we welcome you warmly here today as you speak to us why drug policy is a health care issue. Please, we welcome you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me first say it's always a pleasure for me to be back here in Minneapolis. I was an intern here in 1960. So you see, that was a few days ago. Things have changed since then. 
and it was a real pleasure to meet one of my lady intern friends. That was the year we had five female interns in 1960, and you can know that that was a, I think the university has probably not been the same since. <laughs> I want to thank the Minnesota Drug Policy Foundation and Program Committee for inviting me here, as well as the university. And I thank each of you for being here. Many of you may or may not remember, but in December 1993, following a speech at the National Press Club in Washington, I was asked if I felt the legalization of drugs would reduce crime. I responded that I did not know the implications of legalization or decriminalization, but I thought that it should be studied. You know, if you're spending $67 billion a year on health care related to drugs, $17 billion on an agency related to drugs, and we don't know how much more related to other things, you would think that we would feel we should study what implications it would have. Well, of course, I never had so much rain to fall on me in my life. But be that as it may, I spoke what I felt to be honest and truth, and I still feel the same way. To me, the very first duty of government is to protect its citizens against all threats, foreign and domestic, and uphold the public good. I'm concerned about some of our drug policy laws as to whether they're always doing that. In 1992, President, then President Reagan reignited our drug war, which had been going on for years. Armed with billions of tax dollars, we began a very protracted war with many casualties and we still have no treaty sign, and the drug problem in our young people has in fact increased. We all will readily admit that during the 60s many things were going on, and so the use, casual use of drugs has gone down, almost 50%. But the use of drugs in young people our 12 to 17-year-olds has increased. That, to me, is a real problem because that says that we may, in fact, have more young people getting into trouble. What we found out after that period of time that we're not drug-free, we're just less free. Nowadays, Uncle Sam is the world's fattest jailer with more than 1.5 million people in prison at a cost of more than $35,000 per prisoner. Today, every young, our young black men, many of them, like one out of three, 30 plus percent young black men are in prison or on parole related to drug problems. The thing of it is, is 90%, 90% of all of our drug use 
as related to marijuana. 60 to 70% of the people in prison are there because of marijuana drug use opposition. So that's a real problem. Our prisons are booming. We've gone from 300,000 to over 1.5 million since the 1980s related to our drug policies. Our drug-related offenders make up 60% of the federal prisoners. The average drug sentence in federal prisons is greater for the possession of marijuana than it is for theft, rape, and manslaughter. Each week, the U.S. must add 1,000 beds for the rapid growth of its prison inmates. We imprison more people than Russia under communism and South Africa under apartheid. That, to me, is a real problem. The drug policies in America have never been based on sound principles. Even historically, our very first drug policies in 1875 were really a policy against the Chinese who were smoking opium. So they had a drug policy against the Chinese. They felt that the Chinese would be smoking opium and get white women into opium dens to rape them. There was no evidence for that, but that was what the policy was. Everybody else could still use it. That was in 1975. In 1914, about, we began to have drug policies against cocaine. And we even changed the caliber of weapons our police carry from 32 caliber to 38 caliber weapons because they, it was in the New York Times front page that you couldn't kill those cocaineized niggers with a 38, a 32 caliber weapon. So we had to change, so, we, so then we had another change in our drug policy. And we began, in 1914, we had the Harrison Act, which effectively prohibited opiates and cocaine. Then in 1937, we had the Marijuana Act. And this was primarily to outlaw marijuana because it was really a law against the Mexicans because it was said that the hemp plant and marijuana had an effect on the degenerate races. That was the Mexicans coming across the border to work. So, I, so we have never really based our drug policy on sound public policy. In fact, the people who got it passed said the AMA supported it and they lied about it. And even when they went in and said they lied about it, they, uh, they, they didn't, we've never changed the law and we've continued these very regressive laws, which have very often been laws against many of our own people. Let's talk about how many people use drugs, their own drugs, in the United States. We have 266 million people, and it's been estimated that 66 million have tried marijuana. 10 million of them still use it. 
22 million people have tried cocaine. Many of these are the same. These are overlapping. This doesn't say that there are 22 different people. 1.5 million still do. We have 30 to 40 million people a year who are using drugs. 10 million of them are casual users, and only about 2.7 million of them are addicts. This is down up from 1979. When we look at how many people are harmed medically by marijuana, let me tell you one other thing. We have 150 million people who tried tobacco. 50 million of them still smoke. And your farm, your surgeon, uh, uh, attorney general, and gov governor candidate from Minnesota obviously launched and worked very closely with me when I was Surgeon General and worked very hard to bring about making the tobacco industry feel and take some responsibility. Tobacco kills 390,000 people each year from smoking. Alcohol kills about 80,000. Cocaine kills approximately 2,200 from overdose. Heroin kills approximately 2,000. Aspirin kills approximately 2,000. Marijuana has never been known to kill anyone. The dose between what you have to have to get an effect and the really toxic dose is 40 times higher. So it's, not, it's thought that it's really not possible. So these are some of the real things that are going on. You know, we often think about, when we think about drug use, we think of the poor black in the ghetto. Well, I want you to know that the illicit drug use rate among blacks and whites are approximately the same. It's 6.6% .6 for blacks and 5.5% for whites. It's just that the black youth are far more likely to be arrested, they're far more likely to go to jail, and the drugs they're using, it's more, far more likely to be cracked as opposed to powdered cocaine. And we know that our current federal drug law penalizes crack users 100 times more harshly than for powdered cocaine use. So that's a real problem. I've mentioned to you that 90% of all illicit drug use is related to marijuana that's never killed anybody that we're spending billions of dollars for, that we say that it's a gateway drug. There is no scientific, physiologic, or any other kind of evidence to say it's a gateway drug or any more of a gateway drug, not even as much as tobacco. But we continue to say that. In America today, 1991 compared to 1996, and this is the 1997 U.S. Drug Policy Strategy. In 1991, 6% of our eighth graders used marijuana. 1996 is 18%. In 1991, 15% of our 10th graders, 34% in 1996. 
This is the, data, the last data that we have completed from the household survey. 12th graders has gone from 22% in 91 to 36% in 1996. So that is a real problem. It said that 50% of our high school students have tried drugs by the time they graduate, 25% in the past month. And the mean age of first use is going down. It's dropped from 17.8 years to 16.3 years. The most frequent drug used by youth or young people is not an illicit drug, it's alcohol. 25% of our teenagers, 10th graders, report binge drinking. That's five or more drinks at one time in the past month. A third of our 12th graders and 42% of our college students. That is, again, a real problem. Cocaine is not necessarily a very prevalent used drug in our young people, but it's gone from 1985 from 5.4 million to 1995. It's down to 1.5 million for the use of cocaine. So that's considered a, a, a very good thing, but less than 2% of total use of cocaine. The chronic users of cocaine use two-thirds of all the drug use from cocaine. It's not the casual users, it's the chronic users that use such a large amount. We have about 600,000 people that are addicted to heroin in the United States. They tend to be older and long-term users. They're, but there is increasing abuse among our teenagers. Methamphetamine is increasing very rapidly, especially down in Arkansas and in the Southwest. So we, that is a real problem. It's the second most common used drug now by our young people. Well, what are some of the consequences of these illicit drugs? First of all, I think we can think of the cost. Drug-related illness, death, and crime cost $66.9 billion. That means that every woman and child, every man, woman, and child in the United States pays about $1,000 a year related to drug use. There are 532,000 drug-related ER visits from possible overdose. 40% of the deaths from drugs are in the age groups from 30 to 39. It's thought that 33% of the new AIDS cases or HIV cases, and especially in blacks, is related to injection drug use. That is very often either the partners are using drugs. 5.5% of mothers who deliver babies have been using illicit drugs. And we consider the number of baby, alcohol, and tobacco, 11% of all the babies born in America have been exposed to illicit drugs. We know that in related to drug health problems, related to drug use, we have increased tuberculosis, increased amounts of hepatitis B and C. Those are real problems that are occurring throughout our country. 
the conviction rate as felon drug felons of 56 percent of all convicted drug felons are black. We make up 12 percent of the population. 43 percent of the convicted drug felons are white. It's the incarceration rate for blacks is 14 times that of whites. Those are things that I think that we need to think about. So drug policy is a public health issue. I think we have to ask, are we using the most effective methods of pre prevention? Are we providing adequate, appropriate care for the addicted? Where can we do, what can we do to keep people from using drugs? Does present drug policy promote or inhibit drug use? We've got to decide whether we want to prevent this or whether we want to treat it. We've got to decide whether this is a criminal justice problem or a healthcare system problem. We've got to decide whether we're going to deal with abstinence-only policy, which is our present policy, or can we look and began to address the issue of harm reduction. Can we go, can we give up some of the zero tolerance? We've had two camps, the zero tolerance camp and the legalization camp, and never the two shall meet. So we've got to give up all of our fears and prejudices and ignorance and begin to come together and deal with the real problems related to drugs. Prohibition has not curtailed drug use it is responsible for most of the crime, corruption, disease, and death associated with drugs. It's not the drugs. It's the prohibition and the arrest and the pushing out that has caused many of our present problems. Providing treatment programs to our drug users has been shown it reduces drug use 40 to 50 percent. And it's eight times less costly than incarceration. It reduces drug-related illness. It decreases criminal activity. And it's effective for all, not white, black, uh, Hispanic, Indian. It, 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 drug treatment is effective for all races. And it improves individual well-being. So what are some of the things that we can do, what we need to be about? We need to begin to provide a comprehensive Health education program as an integral part of our school curriculum. It's not just a drug problem. It's an alcohol problem. It's a violence problem. It's a sex problem. It's all. So we need a comprehensive program. We need to begin to recognize drug addiction for the medical problem it is. We need to begin to train private physicians to treat people with substance abuse problems. Right now, it's only in the big cities that you can have a heroin problem, a methadone program, or some other program, but we need to treat all of our people. We need to begin to experiment with, experiment with substitute drugs for cocaine abusers, particularly long-acting amphetamine. We need to develop a needle exchange program so that we can stop spreading HIV disease, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, many of our uh, drug Many of our politicians say that if we give them clean needles, that says that we support drug use. I feel that not giving them clean needles says we support death. We should develop <coughs> a, a drug court that ensures drug offenders are given medical treatment, uh, which is much less expensive. 
We should develop a system to aid offenders in their education employment needs as a part of their rehabilitation. And I personally feel that we should decriminalize marijuana. And then I feel that we decriminalize marijuana, we would be able to have it and tax it. We would be able to markedly reduce the number of criminals we are running around, spend using all of our police, taking care of very low-level offenders, and we're letting the big cats get away. So I think that we've got to begin to deal with that. I understand that you here in Minnesota are much more enlightened than the rest of the country. You began to fight at least against people having drug paraphernalia and make it such that people can get clean needles, which we can't have and it's not available. It's a crime to even have it, oh, to possess it in many other areas of, of, of our country. So I think that you should pat yourself on the back for that. So what can you do? What can the public do to make things change come about? and bring about change. Well, you know, change is the most difficult C word in the English language. Every, y'all remember, when I went to Washington, I thought I was going to change things. <laughs> and everything I wanted to change, or wanted to do, they'd say, Dr. Elders, the time's not right. The place is not right. The people are not right. The money is not right. And of course, you know, finally they said, well, Dr. Elders, you're not right. <laughs> but even though you can't change in everything, and I, and I was ticked out, don't take every bend in the road as the end of the road. Just get out and keep going and keep moving. And for that, you'd have to have courage. Many of you have had courage for a very long time to stand up and keep fighting to make, sometimes we think, well, it's just a tiny change, but any change is a good change and we are moving it in a positive direction. I have to, I'll never forget when I was having my most difficulty, a 67-year-old lady from Alaska wrote me a letter and she says, Dr. Elders, you're right, keep going and keep fighting. She says, always remember one person with courage makes a majority. And every time, I, uh, every time I got down, I went back and read her letter. I think that we have to, if we're going to change things, we have to go out and we have to make things happen. You can't just sit around and let them happen. And some of us even sit around and just ask what's happening. We've got to go and make them happen and make things, I always told people the worst thing, I said, you know what, well, they say good things about you, we love that, or bad things about you, we don't like that. I said, but the worst position to be in is when they say nothing about you. So, so go out and just make things happen. We've got to look at what, make our country begin to study. Do we need to look at the harm reduction and decriminalization programs that are going on in other countries. We don't have to totally reinvent the wheel. Begin to look at some, at least talk about it. We may get in this room and fight until we're blue. That's all right. Just try and move forward. In order to do that, we've got to be aware of the problems. We've got to be advocates for the problem, and we've got to develop an action plan that's right for the United States. We might not be able to take the Netherlands plan and just say, put it in place here. We've got to develop a plan that's right for us. We've got to decide what our goals are. 
We've got to decide what it is that we want to do. The 1997 National Drug Control Strategy felt that their goals were to educate all of us. And heavens, let's make sure that we educate us and give us true information rather than keep building drug policies on lies. We've got, the second goal is to decrease drug-related crime. Most of drug-related crime is really stealing and robbing to get money to buy drugs. It's not, that, it's not that people go crazy when they get out there on drugs, it's to get money, to, most of the crime is related to getting money to buy the drugs. To decrease health and social costs to the public. Well, heaven knows it's been estimated to be somewhere between 60 and $400 billion a year, depends on how you calculate it. And of course, the other thing is that they are a big part of their money out of the six, uh, $17 billion, 67% of it is going to keep drugs out of the country and to pay off other countries to keep them from producing drugs rather than educating our young people and educating our people so that we won't demand the drugs. If there's no demand, you don't have to worry about the supply. So we've got to look at what we can do. And we've got to explore innovative approaches and not just continue to ignore them. We've got to try and look at decriminalization of marijuana. That would be an easy one. Make clean needles available. More treatment centers and support methadone programs. And of course, New York, I think, which probably had the largest methadone program, is tearing theirs down. And we need to get more physicians involved if we're going to make a difference. You've got to summon the courage to do it and recognize that it's not a single issue, but multiple issues. It's like a quilt. We've got to put all the pieces together. We've got to deal with the problems of poverty. We've got to deal with the problems of people being upset and left out. We've got to deal with all the emotional problems. We've got to deal with the problems of school. We've got to be open with our young people. My mom always told me, she, and I had to use this a lot, and I, that's why I was so outspoken. She says, the day we see the truth and cease to speak is the day we begin to die. Well, all of you know I'm going to live a long time because I'm always speaking out. We need to change our system from a use reduction to harm reduction. We know that we've got a long way to go. We know that education is very important and critical. We know that the challenges before us are great, but I feel they aren't challenges that we can't overcome. And I'll tell you, like my bishop, my Bishop told me, you know, my brother is a United Methodist minister, and it's a real pleasure to be here speaking speak at Wesley, and it was wonderful being over at the uh, foundation, but it's a real pleasure. But my bishop told me, you know, when I was really getting beat on a lot, he says, Dr. Elders, you know, he's in the job you're in and the things you're doing. He says, like dancing with a bear. He says, when you're dancing with a bear, you can't get tired and sit down. You have to wait until the bear gets tired. And then you sit down. So I'm always out there trying to get some new partners to help me dance with that old bear so I can sit down. Thank you very much.
Dr. Elders. Thank you, Dr. Elders. Thank you for challenging us to put our fears and prejudice and ignorance aside when it comes to drug, the drug issue, and for giving us an array of, of uh, opportunities and possibilities for getting to the root cause of the issue. Now we come to uh, the question period, and at this time, uh, you may pass your questions uh, to the aisle, and they will be picked up by the ushers. You have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, sponsored by Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, and graciously hosted today by neighboring Wesley Methodist Church. Regional broadcasts of these forums are made possible by a grant from the Spring Hill Center Fund of the Minneapolis Foundation. Today's guest speaker is Dr. M. Jocelyn Elders, who has just spoken on the subject, Why Drug Policy is a Health Care Issue. And now we will proceed to the question and answer period of our program. If I may, I'd like to take the liberty of posing the first question. Uh, I'd like to quote from a study that was reported in the New York Times as of September 12th of this year. It says, offering new evidence that treating drug addicts works in the long term, a government survey has reported that addicts who undergo treatment are considerably less likely to consume drugs or commit crimes to support their use even after five years. Adolescents were the conspicuous exception. Their overall drug use did not drop significantly after treatment, the study said, and the number who smoked crack, cocaine, and abused alcohol actually rose. You, you kind of got into that arena, but I'd like to hear you say some more about why it hasn't worked with the, with the young ones. Well, I think what, one of the reasons that it, that it hadn't worked with our young people is, first of all, we probably not started early enough. And then very often, you know, we, we as parents often haven't even recognized that it was a problem, and rather than really, you know, we, we, we felt that we were treated, and, and they'd come out of treatment, and then they were well forever, mm -hmm. you know, and then we continue to enable it. You all, most of you know that my son was a drug uh, addict, and he's, thankfully, he's doing well still. He's, uh, but I was the world's greatest enabler. And I think that a lot of parents are enablers. However, my son was not an adolescent when it started, but I think the big problem with our adolescents is that it's, it, and it's not just a drug problem. Mm -hmm. It's multiple problems, and very often related to things going on in the home, in the community, with their friends, or many other things. And so, uh, whereas with an adult, I think that they made the decision and they want to. Mm -hmm. I, I feel very strongly from having watched my son mm -hmm. that you have to really want to. It's not mama want to, daddy want mm -hmm. to, friend want to, it's you've got to want to. And I'm, and I'm not sure our adolescents probably, you know, we have to have them in treatment, we have to keep them in treatment, we have to follow them for a long time, we have to provide all kinds of support, but realize it's not just a drug problem, it's multiple problems. Thank you for that, and thank you for sharing about your son. 
Question from the audience. What are your thoughts on the failure of the D.A.R.E. program? Well, I think the failure of the D.A.R.E. program, you know, the D.A.R.E. program was they gave the money to police and the police were going to go into the schools and in the community and, and began to teach the, uh, you know, the children. First of all, you know, when we want an English teacher, we don't go out and hire a physics teacher. And I'm just saying the police didn't, the, the police didn't know how to teach youngsters. They were not in the schools every day. I feel that if we really want to deal with that, we should have given the money to the schools. It should have been a comprehensive health education program dealing with multiple problems, and then the teachers are there each and every day. Whereas the police come in, or whomever gave the talk, gave the drug talk, and they had had their drug education. Well, we all know one time, one shot, never works for much of anything. Next question. Can you comment on the role physicians can or should play in forming drug policy, especially comment on the physician leadership group with uh, David Lewis? I really feel that uh, physicians, we've not done our share. We've been on the outside kind of looking in and reacting to, quote, what's done to us, just like our health, you know, our health care system. You know, in our country, every criminal has a constitutional right to a lawyer, but we don't feel that every sick person has a right to a doctor. So, I, and I think part of that has been that we have, we doctors have not pushed for that. We've not been involved. We've not wanted to be involved with drugs. If anybody had a drug problem, we didn't want them at our office, and we didn't, you know, and if we had an adolescent, well, well, we got to get them over to the psychiatrist or somebody else. But I think that we as doctors, people that, uh, that we need to take a far greater role, and I feel that Dr. Lewis is trying to form a leadership role to help get doctors involved in this program so we can stop criminalizing a medical problem and we can begin to treat it like the medical problem that it is. Another question from the audience. How, if at all, can politicians be made to recognize the black market problem? You know, I think that uh, our politicians recognize much, much more than, than they admit to. They are very, the politicians are aware that our drug policy problems are, that our war on drugs is a failure. They are aware that many of the problems that come up when we talk about drugs is not the right thing to do. But the problem is we've not convinced the grassroots effort about that issue, and they are still voting, doing what they think you want them to do. If we want our politicians to be aware and to change, we've got to go out and help convince the community to change. Question about marijuana. How does marijuana compare with tobacco in regards to lung damage? Does marijuana have any effect on young people, 10 to 18, and their ability to learn and study? 
it has been said, you know, for a while they were saying that, you know, the smoke and the inhalations from marijuana certainly could cause lung cancer. We all know it took, I don't know how many years, I'm not even sure the tobacco industry has admitted that tobacco causes lung cancer yet. But, we, but you know, I think we accept that. I and mean, there are some studies, uh, there are some, well, not studies, but there are some suggestions that the smoking of marijuana might cause some lung cancer and it also might alter you know, the thinking, you know, um, you know, of young people or probably old people. Uh, but, uh, there, you know, there has not been the kind of data collected on marijuana that there is on uh, cigarettes to document its effect on lung cancer. And, but we know that, you know, I think all of this getting upset and going crazy and wild and, and, and marked changes in personality is not really what happens. The drug that causes the greatest change on aggressive behaviors and all is alcohol. Uh, that leads into this next question. To what do you attribute the disproportionate attention, public service announcements, etc., seem to focus on heroin, cocaine, pot, etc., when the real drug of choice seems to be alcohol? The alcohol industry, culture, what? Well, you know, when I talk to, when you talk to politicians about it, their answer is, well, uh, alcohol is legal and the others are illegal. Well, you know, who made them legal or illegal? You know, we, you know, we the people are, you know, through our politicians, and to me, I feel that that's us, uh, made that decision. And, but I, you know, I certainly feel that, and when you talk to the alcohol industry, they say, well, we don't want alcoholics or drunks, we want to be responsible. We want everybody to be moderate drinkers or, you know, or, so I'm just saying that I think that uh, part of it is our, part of it's our culture, part of it uh, is our industry, and part of it is that we probably, you know, we made regressive laws years ago and we haven't decided to change them. You know, no, I, I don't think tobacco would ever get legalized now. You know, so, so I think it's the times. Question from the floor. If we decriminalize cocaine and marijuana, do you feel that drug use would decrease or increase? Well, I think the studies that, that we have out there suggest that drug use would probably increase somewhat. So, you know, sadly, it, it probably would increase. Whether we would have more people that are addicted to drugs I don't know, but it, the use would increase. The crime would definitely go down. I think the d data, all the studies say crime would go down, but probably drug use would increase. Would you please comment on the political movement to undermine the minor consent law, which allows young people to access, access health and mental health and chemical health care confidentiality. What can we do to help maintain this important right for adolescents? You know, I, th I think that's a very good question, and I think that we have to, uh, you know, really, we have to address that with our votes and, and decide, you know, it, it's really, you know, I think it was the abortion issue that's bringing all of that up and bringing it to fore. It's really not, and, and because we don't even want our young people, you know, to be able to access care and we feel that they should talk to parents, yet we know that on the studies that's been done, 70 to 80 percent of young people do end up going to their parents 
first. When we talk about sexuality issues, we found, it, we found only 7% of the children consider their parents their primary sex educators. The, we parents don't talk to our children. You know, maybe everybody in this room does, but most of us, you know, most of us really don't. And so I think that um, we need to keep avenues open for our children to get access to information. Ignorance is not bliss. We should look at some of the countries who allow open uh, information to be distributed to children who have comprehensive sexuality education and where they consider honesty, empowerment, and responsibility. And we don't empower our young people to be responsible because we want them, we say, well, if we tell them about it, they'll do it. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid we let the TV and the streets and everybody else tell them all about it, and I don't think we could ever again say anything about what we don't want our children to hear about after the past week on TV. <laughs> Amen. What can we learn from some European countries regarding le legalization of drugs? Well, I think that uh, you know the Netherlands, uh, Switzerland, England, and several of the European countries have really looked at various strategies for looking at drugs. And what they, their principal idea is to reduce harm, the harm that's caused, harm reduction. They aren't out there trying to just reduce drug use, the substance, substance abuse use. They're trying to reduce the harm from drugs, and I think their studies suggest that it is, in fact, doing that. They have far less illness. They aren't having the, you know, the kinds of people hanging out on the streets, dazed out, as we, as we you know, are allowed to believe. People are working. They're with their families. They're not in jails. And so what we've done is criminalized our system Put, got young people up, put them in jail, and so now they get out, they can't get jobs, they have to steal and rob, they're back in jail. We created the problem we've got. What were the unspoken reasons that you were removed from your position as Surgeon General? <laughs> Well, you know, I think most of, the, uh, if, most of the reasons I was removed were spoken. Everybody knows what they are. Uh, as most of you know, I think that there were only twice while I was in Washington that anybody ever said anything about anything I said. Every time I would see the president, he'd say, keep it up, you know, uh, good job. Well, then, um, you know, I m made the comment that I told you about, about uh, I felt that we should study the legalization of drugs, and of course I was called in by the secretary and said, well, we aren't going to legalize drugs, and the president is still saying we aren't going to, but at least I feel we at least need to get in a room and talk about it. Maybe we aren't going to legalize it, but at least we can look at harm reduction methods. And the second reason was I was asked a question at the UN. See, I don't know how to answer questions in public, at, in government. <laughs> Uh, about uh, whether I felt that uh, a masturbation would reduce AIDS, the trans spread of AIDS. And of course, I was at the UN. Many African countries were there, and the, some of those countries have a 30-plus percent uh, HIV positive rate. And I said that, uh, and I, that I felt that, uh, you know, that certainly uh, that masturbation 
could reduce the spread of AIDS. It's never gotten anybody pregnant. It's never given anybody a disease. And you know that you're having sex with somebody you love and it's a normal part of human sexuality. But 80% of women masturbate, 90% of men masturbate, and the rest lie. We knew this forum was going to get lively. <laughs> Here we are in a church, and you referred in to some very religious non-Christians. Would you care to comment how you came by that? All right. Well, I was, uh, again, I was being accused by a group at a church, and we was really, uh, I think we were talking about the abortion. I was talking about the abortion issue. And... Uh, they were, you know, really, they, this group, and I was a specific group in Arkansas, we were talking about, you know, they were always out fighting about the abortion issue. I was saying, well, let's talk about health care. Let's talk about well, uh, welfare. Let's talk about uh, pr preventing uh, pregnancies. And I said, as you all know, I'm not about abortion. I have always been about preventing unplanned, unwanted pregnancies. And I've never known any woman to need an abortion that was not already pregnant. So that, that, so that was kind of how we ended up uh, uh, talking about this. But I said that they had a love affair with the fetus. And the reason I said that they had a love affair with the fetus is that they worked and did all this work to prevent people from getting an abortion, and they were primarily talking about the young, the poor, and the ignorant, because we all know that everybody else who wants one, they can get a, you know, maybe not get a fur coat for Christmas and go fly to Sweden and get one, you know, if they, but that what we really, if they really supported children, they would be out there supporting health care, they would be out there supporting education, they would be out there supporting the welfare, but they loved little babies until they were born. And then once they were born, they didn't support any of the things that, made, that gave them a good life. So I agreed that they were very religious, but they were not Christian. How do you translate this uh, sentence? I went in there feeling like prime steak, and I came out feeling like poor great hamburger. <laughs> Well, you know, but I left Arkansas to go to Washington. I was really very proud of myself. I was a professor, and I'd been director of the health department, and I was president of the Association of State and Territorial Health Officers. So I really felt that I knew what I was doing, and I was really hot stuff. And uh, so, uh, but then, you know, by the time I got, I was beat on so badly, well, I, I almost felt like I didn't know anything. <laughs> but I still feel I was right. I loved being your Surgeon General. I did it the very best way I knew how. And if I had it all to do over again, starting today, I would do it exactly the same way. Someone here remembers your reference to the 5-H club. What yeah. is the 5-H club? Okay. Well, you know, I, you know, we talk about poverty. You know, the 
every, you know, people are getting wealth, the wealthy are getting wealthier and the poor are getting poorer. We have been a widening of the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And, and because of that, in fact, we have gone from one in seven children being poor to one in five children being uh, poor in 1990 to one in four in 1995 and to one in two if they're minorities. The children of the 5-H club are children that are hungry every night in the richest country in the world. We have three to five million children who go to bed hungry. Children that are healthless, who have no access to health care. You know, many uh, mothers who work who uh, don't have health insurance and they can't get their children into health care. So of the 43 million people in America who have no health care, a third of those are children. Children who are homeless. When mothers are homeless, children are homeless. The most common cause of children being homeless is related to violence. And, you know, so, and then the, third, the fourth one is children that are hugless, children who find it easier to find drugs than it is to find hugs. And lastly, it's children that are hopeless. We all know that when hope dies, moral decay can't be far behind. You comment in your book that uh, your involvement with the Methodists has gone back as far as memory takes you. Perhaps you'd like to comment on that dimension of your life, because in your book you speak very openly. Y yes. Well, of course, I, th I really give the United Methodist women credit for my being here today and for my being where I am, because I was, again, this is my hometown. There are 99 people, 98 when I'm in Minneapolis. Uh, <laughs> But when I graduated from high school, you know, I didn't, you know, my mom, you know, she always told us, if you want to get out of the cotton patch, you got to get something in your head. But getting a high school graduation, you know, back in those days was getting something in your head. So, but the, that night of my graduation, the United Methodist Women offered me a scholarship to Philander Smith College. And we didn't even have, nobody in my family had ever been to college. We didn't know anything about college. And then they, uh, so we, we had, my sisters and brothers picked cotton in order for us to have enough money to go, for me to go to college, to get the bus fare. It was $3.43. And so, you know, you think, well, that's a nothing. But you know, if you don't have a dime, $3.43 ends up being an awful lot of money. And so that was how, we, we got there, and I remember my young brother, who was about five then, he's presently a district superintendent for the United Methodist Church, but he looked and he picked all day, we'd worked very hard, and he looked up and he says, do we have enough yet? And I'll never forget that, because I felt that, it, you know, it wasn't a mean, you know, it, but he just wanted to know, well, you know, you know, he was very tired, and do we have enough so we can quit and go home? So, so I felt, feel very strongly, and I've always felt that I had a real obligation to young women, especially the United Methodist women, and whatever I do, nothing, I'm always out there fighting for the bright young women who need a shoulder to stand on because the United Methodist women gave me a shoulder to stand on when I wouldn't have had one. Quoting one more time from your book, when I was Surgeon General, I felt I had nothing to lose. 
I even have less to lose now that I'm out of public service and back as a pediatric endocrinologist <laughs> at the University of Arkansas. None of the essentials has changed. I'm a physician, I'm black and female. I've been poor, I've been through it, I'm still here, and I'm still in the fight. Carry on. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.